You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. I can't describe Your guide for this week's episode is our North American editor, Matt McDermott, who will be sharing his conversation with the LA-based singer, composer, producer, Night Jewel. I didn't want to use drums as my bass because I was kind of like sick of drums. Yeah. I was just like sick of having a pop song with like electronic drums. That was just like for me, I just didn't want to hear that again on, on Night Jewel. Yeah. Um, so my choice was to use a sequencer. But the basic idea is the same. It's like play jazzy chords along to this rhythm and like kind of do your thing. And Dame and I were just always like, that's the vibe, you know? Something. Matt is about to introduce Nigel in detail. So all I'll say for now is that I loved listening to this. As you're about to hear, their conversation covers the parameters and tools that Nigel sets up to challenge herself on each project and her research into pop divas and studying professional mourners and lament culture. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Night Jewel on RA's Exchange. I Hello, my name is Matthew McDermott, and I am the North American editor at Resident Advisor, and you are listening to the RA Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, promoters, and other figures who are shaping the electronic music world. Today, I am in Los Angeles for my first in-person interview in the past almost two years, um, and it is my great honor to speak with Night Jewel, also known as Ramona Gonzalez. Uh, thanks so much for hanging, Thank Ramona. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Excited. Likewise. Ramona is about to release a new record um the new record is called no sun and it is out on her own gloriette records label and i've been listening to the record a lot like first of all congratulations it's an amazing record um you know there are there are elements like um i think it's on two feel it has like one of the best key changes i've heard (laughs) oh it's so good thank you yeah it's amazing um but i've noticed that you know, this record is extremely stripped down um, and vulnerable as well. And so, like, it, to the extent it almost, like, feels a bit like a folk record to me yeah. or something like that. Does that idea resonate with you at all? Yeah, I've always kind of had uh, the folk tradition in me just because I grew up in, in Berkeley um, with a lot of sort of folk music, roots music, global music. Um so I've always kind of considered myself like an electronic folk musician in a way, and this is me like really coming out with that statement, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I was speaking with a music journalist named Miles Bow last year, and, and, and he was like, yeah, all this like new band camp stuff, like it feels like the new folk music to <laughs> me. And like listening back to your early releases, um, which were more 
I hate to use this word, but like lo-fi. Yeah. Like there, there you is can the, use that word. It's not yeah. a dirty word to me. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there's the idea that it's just like, yeah, we're like making stuff quickly. Yeah. Like we're mixing it in a certain way. We're like getting it out there mm-hmm. on like MySpace where like that era of LA music, it, it did feel like kind of like folk music with synthesizers, yeah. Yeah. you know? I uh, mean, I think that's true. When I was growing up, you know, I played piano um, I tried to learn guitar, wasn't very good at it, but, you know, it always occurred to me, like, these aren't the instruments that are going to communicate my selfhood, you know? That doesn't mean that the structures of the songs can't be folk-like in their arrangements, you know, um, in the sense of, like, you know, say, like, a Vashti Bunyan song, which is just basically one section repeating or two sections repeating ad infinitum. But I I knew that there was had to be a different instrument, and it was always, you know... Uh, I was always searching for it, and I found synthesizers when I moved to L.A. You know, I hadn't really encountered them before. I went to Future Music while when it was in West Hollywood, and I bought a Juno 60, and I would continue to borrow synths from Jack for many years. Mm. He's the homie, Future yeah. Music. They yeah. moved to Highland Park. But when I first put my hands on the synths that he sold to me or lent to me, that was when I was like, oh, okay, this is the sound texture that I need. But the song structures are always going to be like based in something more like organic, I think. Mm. Do you do you write on piano or do you write on synths? Or Sometimes. Have you, yeah. um, but, you know, I tend to write in a very like particular way, especially for No Sun, which was I set up my tools in advance the I, I decide on a particular set of tools and recording techniques. Um, so in the beginning of No Sun, it was the Moog Mother 32 sequencer and a Fender Rhodes. Mm. That was like my two elements that I was like allowed to use basically. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, I decided I wasn't going to use a grid for it. So I was like, okay, I can record in a DAW, but I'm not going to have the editing capacities that I had with my last two records. So in in that sense, I wrote in a sort of atypical way in that I was um, writing two sequences, but it was still on a Fender Rhodes. Um, so it's it's just a way to keep time and um, also think of time more elastic-like um, because the sequencer is, sometimes the sequences don't have a distinct meter or they tend to drift in and out of time. And it allows you to sort of like think outside of the, of the grid framework. And was there also the idea and I didn't expect to get so technical so early, Sorry. but uh, no, I'm down. Uh, but was there also the idea that getting off the grid limits what you're able to do yes. in post? And why was that important to you? Well, so I always worked with analog in the beginning. So through Good Evening to through One Second of Love, it was all done on tape um, at varying sizes. Um, there was a couple songs in, in there that I used, like Logic, like on the Mexican Summer, 12-inch, stuff like that. But I was pretty used to using analog, and those limitations, you know, were important to me so that I could think, like, um, so I wouldn't stop after a verse. Okay, I got a good part. What's the next part going to be? And then it becomes this exquisite corpse of a song, mm-hmm. which is, is great for certain pop music. But I wanted this record to be improvisational mm-hmm. and to be more like a jazz recording where things are pieced together through playing that happens as opposed to like an analysis of this is good, this is good, this is good. It like hap- Sometimes when you're doing that on the grid, it happens during the yeah. creativity. And I wanted that analysis to happen like way after the creativity. Um, and so I, I chose the non-grid method. Um, 
and just playing to the sequencer. I would improvise for like 20 minutes at a time. Um, it did make post editing a little hard. Yeah. And um, it made the uh, subsequent addition of percussion very hard. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so it's a, you end up like painting drum samples on your session. Uh, luckily, the drummer who played on um, two of the tracks, three of the tracks, Corey Fogel, who plays with Julia, um, yeah. uh, he uh, is so just out there that he could play along to the sequences no problem into my weird vocal rhythms and he was just like yeah yeah I get this I I got this pattern you know so I was lucky to have him to play along after totally Um, we are referring to Julia Holter your friend and sometime collaborator as well and Corey Fogel he's credited as playing um, brown paper bags (laughs) you're you're credited with playing ceiling fan on the track (laughs) so so like I mean, you got to tell us what's up. Yeah. Um, that was, so there was a ceiling fan playing while I was recording that song um, in my demo microphone and it ended up feeling rhythmic and I ended up chopping it up and keeping it on the recording and it sort of became a reference for Corey and he was supposed to play um, brushes on the snare um, in the studio because uh, I ended up recording, after I recorded all the basic elements, we brought it to Stone's Throw. I brought mm-hmm. it to Stone's Throw um, with Jake Viator, who's the studio manager and um, we recorded vocals and percussion there, all the acoustic elements. Mm-hmm. Um, any, anyhow, so... I, you know, tell Corey, I'm going to have you play on these several songs. Don't forget your brushes. Well, he forgot his brushes. Um, and so I was like, damn. And then uh, he, he just came into the studio and he just tore apart this bag that was in the control room and was like, I, I got it. I got it. Don't worry. You know, and it ended up sounding cool. And then, you know, you have cool references to different, like, odd elements. Definitely. And I, I feel like you're sort of in a roundabout way explaining something about Los Angeles in like 2021 as well, where, you know, you just like rock up to Stone's Throw. They're, <laughs> they're like, you know, portraits of MF Doom and Mad Lib yeah, on the wall. But legendary. like, yeah, but you, but it's also like quite casual and it's like, oh, I'm working with like Julia's uh, percussionist. He forgot his brushes, so he's going to rip <laughs> this paper bag apart. Like, I mean, can you sort of describe your artistic milieu a little bit yeah. like i know that one of the first seven inches came out on stone's, on stone's throw, throw yeah. yeah so can you, who, who do you resonate with i mean stone's throw that is a crazy connection because i was listening to like quasimodo and madlib when i was in like college and, and maybe late high school and like i was just like i was a huge fan of that music um and so it was kind of trippy to me to be in l well Honestly, when I moved to L.A., I was around all of my favorite music. I was in the, you know, sort of John Mouse, Julia Holter, Geneva Jacuzzi crowd, Ariel crowd. Um, I really admired all of them. I really admired Stone, all the Stone's Throw artists. And here I was just kind of like in the mix with them. Um, and it just happens that way. I, I don't know how, but it just does. And... Um, I think the lo-fi thing carries through both scenes. Uh, the 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 basically the experimental approach to recording mm. pervades these scenes, um, with a solid solid knowledge of music history and records and recording. Um, and so, like me and Dame connected really early on. 
through MySpace. Yeah. And it was on. It was about records. I think it was a raw. It was like the raw band yeah. messages from the stars. We were just like vibing on that, and then he went to Groove Merchant in SF. So we were talking on MySpace, and he didn't really know who I was, but I knew who he was, and I was sort of reaching out to him. He goes to Groove Merchant in SF shortly after this message from me, and you know they're playing my record, Good Evening, and he's like, what the hell is this? He returns to MySpace like maybe a couple months later, and he's like, that's you? What the? He's like trying to make all these connections. And it, we were both just super into improvisation. I mean, if you listen to Dame's new record, like yeah. it's just improvisation. Yeah, totally. Along to patterns, you know. I didn't want to use drums as my bass because I was kind of like sick of drums. Yeah. I was just like sick of having a pop song with like, electronic drums that was just like for me i just didn't want to hear that again on on night jewel yeah um so my choice was to use a sequencer but the basic idea is the same it's like play jazzy chords along to this rhythm and like kind of do your thing and dame and i were just always like that's the vibe you know um feeling and stuff like that um so yeah it's just like a musical connection and then he's brought me to stones Row, and i started hanging out i started hanging out with pb wolf uh, we would just vibe. We, we we went on tour together doing the Kraftwerk cover band. Yeah. We went to Poland and Australia together. I mean, I don't know. It's just like nerd zone or something. We're just like into the same history of music, and we just we just love to talk about it. Talk about records, you know. But one of the things you've also mentioned in the past is like, you know, it is rad and it is casual, and like sometimes you can see. Uh, Wolf playing tapes or like you know the play 45s that he made to like 20 people mm-hmm. and, and it feels really chill but there is also this like proximity to the entertainment industry yeah that's the weird part right it's like there it's a serious business too that's the thing that's crazy and yeah, you know, coming from the Bay, where we're all just, like, very provincial over there, and the only thing we care about is, like, going to get wine and, like, you know, whatever, talk about books and stuff. Coming to L.A., I was very, like, out of my element with the entertainment biz side of things. Um, now I teach a course in music business at Occidental. So I've definitely gotten a handle on everything. Running my own label helps. But, um, yeah, I think that's the thing is that these artists aren't afraid of commercialism either. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't scare them because they're fully solid within their vision. Nothing about, like, success freaks them out necessarily because ultimately they're punks in the end. If they are able to see success from their artistry, it's not because they sold out. It's because they are just way ahead of the curve. definitely i mean but okay so for with with your music it's it's like suburbia got synced in a movie early on like you were also in yeah and um you've also been in like rockstar games and stuff like that so and and then you know there is this like massive jump in fidelity between uh good evening and one second of love massive yeah Yeah. And, and is that like like, I feel like the subtext is, is sometimes, and I might be totally off. I'm not meaning to be presumptuous. It's no, like, no, no. it's go like, ahead. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to fucking go for it. Like, you yeah. know, and, and then you're like, actually, that <laughs> sucks. Funny. Like, and yeah. I don't think it was going for it. I think it was more like, fuck everybody's perception of me. Mm. I think that was like the main driving force was like, I love Steely Dan. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, I know everybody sees me as this lo-fi, chill, wavy chiller <laughs> with all these other people who, what, basically what they do is they just, like, sample a recording, put it on repeat with vinyl simulator. Like, that is not me. I'm a musician. Yeah. I like slick 80s adult contemporary, yeah. too. I like Fleetwood Mac. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I was more just like, I am more than this. But I do think that there was a lot of pressure to succeed with that record. And because of the way it was marketed by the label, I think it could have been seen as, like, my coming out moment. But it didn't feel that way to me, necessarily. It felt like uh, I was just trying to flip the script on what people perceived me as able to do. Um, I just think that, like, it was, like, um, over. I was really overly ambitious with the record in general. Um, and I think that I could have made a record more similar to No Sun mm. in the sense that I see the parallels between One Second of Love and No Sun and their kind of their fidelity of the voice. But No Sun is like, it's not trying too hard at mm. all. I mean, it's not really trying hard at all. It's more dejected than anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like to think that I have the, the range to do any type of fidelity of music. And I guess I was trying to prove that to... Too hard with one second, yeah. I mean, hey, I don't, I don't view it that way, like per se. But I, I do understand what you're saying with like the parallels between these two records. And I'm gonna get back to No Sun in a minute, but like, I guess there's also this thing where it's like, oh, that artist is like lo-fi, and like, if they actually are, like. It's probably out of necessity to begin with as oh, well. Sure. Like, it was an economic thing. Yeah. You know, we were all sort of trying to figure out, Julia, Ariel, and myself, and even Dame to some extent yeah, yeah. with uh, Invite the Light, how do we go from our previous sound and turn it into what, the record that we'd actually like to make? Um, I think that One Second of Love, there are definitely glimmers of brilliance on that record where there are certain songs that I love so much, but I think ultimately it was too soon for me to make that statement I, in terms of my ability at recording and songwriting. And No Sun now, I do feel like is the, the real answer to what can I do with just like the best sounding like recording like mm. you know and it, it's not that it's necessarily super hi-fi but I think that it is it has a sophisticated like sound um and it's like the right approach to creativity with the right approach to production you know it shows like a certain yeah um depth that I wanted people to know that I had and not just being this like chill waver forever yeah you know yeah. I, I mean like i always compare it to like you know the abstract expressionists who you know did these studies like these classical studies prior or like when you see like this like masterful minimal painting where mm. you know when you're not you but anybody like when you're early earlier in your career you're like no, I can do all this. Like you, and and you like cram it in to some extent. Totally. And like this record, it's like nothing is on this record that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, it it's uh, it's definitely a regretless occasion, mm -hmm. for sure. And let's talk about like you know your songwriting method for this. Like is 
somewhat raw and that's reflected in the lyrical content as well and like you said in the past that you're not and this is from an interview probably a couple years ago you don't typically like you're not like this bleeding heart emotion (laughs) person and Nigel tends to be the place where you are vulnerable right this steps that up to like a massive degree massively yeah no I mean I was always like kind of cryptic in the past with lyrics but also I was I was really focused on like kind of global concerns a lot of the time that's my philosophy background you know the obsession over like technology and things like that um this record I really tried to get at um what I was feeling really try to communicate that in the poetry of of the lyrics so that people could actually actually sense it like it would stimulate that sense um and it required not being so uh I don't know if it's like uh protective um you know clever like leaving the cleverness behind and just allowing it to be um more of a direct reflection of the emotion. Not everything is like necessarily realistic mm. um, in the lyricism, but it's just trying to capture um, uh, a feeling that maybe other people could also relate to in its grief and its isolation, its aloneness, um, its sense of loss, its sense of like, yeah, dejection and confusion. Um, I was just trying to make that heard, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, you've sort of posted some of the lyrics from the record off of the first three singles. And, um, you know, there's also a Sun Ra cover uh, that ends yeah. the record um, that gives the record its title. And, you know, yeah. that's a, a, the original is like a chant, like, tune um where the refrain goes when there is no sun like some of the other lyrics from to feel are like pick up my pen your face again nobody else yeah um yeah and then like the opener like you know you say i wonder if i took over your life because it seems you took over mine where it, where it is but you know when we're speaking about it you use the adjective dejected I'm reading these lyrics that are like pretty vulnerable. It doesn't, there's some other emotion there too. Yeah. Any more is interesting because it's a meta commentary on uh, creativity in a way. I can't describe anything that I want. I can't describe anything that I want is like, I'm trying to tell you listener something and I, I don't even know how it's that sort of difficult for me to express because I'm just physically feeling things in my body as I'm recording and I'm not sure how to put that into words without being trite mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um, so it is interesting how some of these lyrics are like a meta commentary on the creative process and maybe working through grief through the creative process um, Sun Ra's lyrics were like you know that was the song when I recorded that cover I knew that this, this it was going to be an album mm. because it was almost like he was giving me a way to talk about this sensation that I was feeling which is like 
I mean, in my mind, what I imagine him saying, which is my perception, it's not putting words in his mouth, but what he's saying in that song is, um, you know, the sky is a sea of darkness when there is no sun. That could be like a scary image, you know, for sure. Um, when the sun isn't shining in space, it's, it's frightening. It's black, you know. Um, but also for Sun Ra, you know, space is, is liberatory. Um, it's where freedom exists, you know, for marginalized people. And so that's also like a, a place of hope, right? And it's, and it's beautiful. It's like awe-inspiring. And that's kind of where I was with this record. So you're right, it's not just dejection. It's, it's fear, but it's also like freedom and, and seeing the liberatory possibilities for that, that scary place that you're in. I mean, that's such like an amazing metaphor that I, I don't really have a follow-up to that. <laughs> like, but beyond, you know, you were speaking about the album opener anymore and how it's a meta-commentary on creativity. Um, and, you know, there are several other themes running through the, the record. Like, uh, you know, there's this tradition of, of professional mourners, mostly... Um, women hired for funerary rites. Um, there is, you know, the split with your longtime partner and creative partner, uh, Cole MGN. And so I guess when you're doing a meta commentary on creativity via the lens of this former relationship, they're so intertwined as well. Like it's like almost the same. Thing. It's so true. That's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, you would know because you've you've known that Cole and I collaborated for so long. But I will say that the idea to refuse uh, drum samples or an electronic drum bass foundation for my initial recording of the record had a lot to do with rejecting Cole's influence mm. because he's like so good at making beats. I mean he's been doing it since he was like 12 years old and you know you hear like the the drums on like what did he say that he sampled or the the drums on like you know too good to be true which he created like these are just infectious drum drum programming that's what it is and i was like i don't want any drum programming on my record basically it was like what i was thinking I ended up programming drums but but it was like this um rejection of that side of my creativity um, so you're right, it is, it is bound up in itself. The loss of that um, love was a loss of a creative like injection mm. also. Um, but I didn't feel lost. That mm. was the thing. I felt very, very focused and totally on, on the money with what I was doing. But um, it's still like this feeling of like you're you're falling because there's not those <laughs> kick drums to catch you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that the press release says is um, dating back to ancient Greece, the lament has used female voices as a vehicle for expressing communal and personal grief. In her research, Gonzalez considers this tradition within the context of contemporary pop divas, asking the question, what does it mean to be a professional mourner? Um, first of all, like, can you speak a bit more about this research? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so 
it's interesting. I started my PhD um, around the time that I was like recording these songs for No mm-hmm. Sun, and I'm, I studied musicology at UCLA. Um, I just became very interested in women's voices, contemporary pop divas, because I'm like, this is just like kind of what I do or like what I wish I would like. It's kind of like Nigel has always had this like div- aspirational, reluctant diva thing. Right. Yes. And it's because I grew up with these singers and I love them. You know, I love freaking Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, all these people. I don't want to be that, but I love listening to it. It's a huge influence on me. And I like am in musicology and I'm thinking, God, no one really writes about these people. You know, mm. musicology is, you know, does does write about there are people who write about popular music, but there hasn't been a lot of work done on these singers because they're not considered composers. Pop music is not like the most widely researched thing. And if it is, it's bec- it needs, you know, certain messaging or there has to be some sort of, you know, experimental element or something that, you know, rings like important for a historical musicologist. And then I was really thinking like, you know, a lot of these singers, they're just singing sad, sad songs all the time. You know, think about Sade. Um, I was really interested in Rosalia at the time, Flamenco. It's it's all about angst and, and existential suffering. And I thought like, what is what is up with this? What's up with these these singers? You know, we they're so important. They, they, they have so much importance culturally and they're always singing kind of about sad things. But, you know, why isn't that um, considered worthy of scholarship? Mm. It brought me into this study of the history of, of laments, and I learned that, you know, this was women's duty, you know, in ancient Greece, they, they, not men. Like, it was specifically women who were hired, not women in the family or, like, a family friend, but a there was a specific job for a woman to come to, a, you know, a, a, a morning ritual and scream and wail. And I became interested in the texture of women's voices, the types of singing, you know, really the vocality and like how it signals grief for people. Mm. Later, you know, uh, we we do a lot of um, studies of medieval music, early modern music and musicology. And I was also fascinated by like this like neoclassicist revival that happens in the 1600s with composers like Monteverdi who start using Greek texts um, and creating laments, specifically lament of the X, lament of the Y, um, and women are are put in this role once again, and they sing in a particular style, and they sing about particular tragic things. So it's like the aestheticization of the lament happens at a certain point, and these songs are just incredible. These arias are just, I mean, they're infectious, and I'm like, these are the pop divas of the day. Mm. Then it turns into opera, and then they are actual divas, so why hasn't this history been traced to these contemporary artists like Sade, who I'm researching right now? And my contention is that, you know, we don't see them in this tradition because we're so used to these pop singers singing sad songs. We don't even like notice it. We don't even notice mm. it as a lament. It's just what it's just come to be so expected that we cathartic we have this cathartic process of processing our grief or processing our pain in front of these singers who sing uh, so mournfully or sorrowfully but we don't really know about that history we're not tying it to that so it gives these singers a sense of agency it it gives them a sense of profundity and depth that maybe hasn't been given before um, because it aligns them with this history so that's like my project. I've done a bit of research on Rosalia and the history of flamenco, and I'm doing a project on Sade, and I'm also doing a project on Lana Del Rey, 
born to die, um, you know, that's clearly in the lament practice. But there's also power differentials to think about between these different mourners and who they're mourning for, what collective, what community, and um, who they're speaking for. So that's also an important aspect of the project. I mean, fascinating. Thank you for that. Is this a, is you're already a professor at Occidental um, where you studied for two years and you're currently the Johnston Fix Professor of the Practice in Songwriting, but um, I want to speak a That's bit a more. Mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> I want to, so much so that I had to read it, um, but I, I wanted to speak like this project where you're focusing on Rosalia, uh, Sade and Lana Del Rey like is is this what is this larger project beyond the record and so the research my dissertation going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um you know I, I ideally these artists would be sort of strung together in a particular way that would present issues um about the laments that previously have not been addressed um but they're also like kind of standalone projects in their own right um maybe they'll they'll see publication at, at some point um the rosalia project kind of consumed me for the past two years but and so i'm working on the Sade project this summer yeah yeah amazing uh farrar strauss and Giraud holler you know like uh <laughs> but um i mean that's incredible like one of the things i wanted to speak about like actually based off of what you said is is okay so you have this idea of like you turn on the radio somebody singing a sad song is that the, and and when you think about it it's like oh that's like a sad country song like some like right you Dolly know Parton. yeah and 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 like but when you fast forward to people like Shade Adu who are often referred to as like sphinx like or something like where it's mm -hmm. like they don't or Whitney Houston, like the sadness of Whitney Houston only became mm -hmm. clear mm -hmm. later in her mm -hmm. career and especially in retrospect, mm -hmm. like where, and, and like, I feel like, you know, the outlaw male country musician drinking whiskey is expressing the sadness of their soul while the contemporary pop diva is, is sort of like this weird vessel mm -hmm. um they're seen they're seen as vessels i think um for visceral emotion um and that that is kind of one of the things that i'm hoping to to disrupt because these singers are skilled you know they're 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 making choices whether it's Sade to sing with a sort of like smooth contralto tone to sing behind the beat her lyrical choices, um, what she's, you know, she's calling it lover's rock. She's calling, what, why is she using the genre lover's rock? What would be the reason that she would use lover's rock as the genre? Um, is that a feminist critique? Um, she has king of sorrow. Um, I'm crying everyone's tears. Um, you know, it's packaged in this smooth, sensuous sort of like mythos. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not uh, mourn mournful. And, and that doesn't mean it's not a lament. Um, it's just that it's, um, it's multifaceted in a way that we might not be able to like immediately recognize because there's not like a one-to-one -one correspondence between the sound of the music and the message that it's trying to uh, promote. Um, mm. So yeah, I think that you have to dig a little deeper because it's not so clear as 
the blue as the blues yeah you know but the blues plays into Sade's work it's like a di- diasporic black uh, music is what underlies Lover's Rock as an album there's soul influences from the US there's you know Jamaican roots music there's hip hop there's reggae there's Lover's Rock I mean there's so much going on um, and sometimes when there is so much going on and it sounds so good and you can just groove to it it's like we fail to recognize the ethical importance of of the record and in fact doing research on lovers rock it's really interesting the reviews of that album when it came out in 2000 because they're very mixed yeah and in fact the washington post oh god i forget who the journalist is it's it's well, probably better that i don't name them <laughs> but you know they they belittle the political messages of that record um and i just can't help but think it's because of uh, who's singing, yeah, and because of the the tonality of it, and again, it's my project to be like just because someone isn't screaming and wailing and talking and and talking and singing with a guitar and folk music and like you know this country sort of style or or wailing you know crying out in the typical way that we would think it would sound, does not mean that it's not within this history where women have this incredibly crucial and empowered position to sing for the collective pain of a community, which in Shade's case, I think is like the black community, I would, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And, and so like to bring it into like No Sun, a dejected record can be like smooth as hell. <laughs> yeah. And you know, No Sun is funny because I was recording those songs before I sort of crystallized this dissertation topic. So I'm reflecting back on my album yeah. and I'm saying, oh God, like I'm also this kind of person. Um, And I'm using these techniques, these lament quote unquote kinds of techniques, whether it be harmonic techniques, melodic techniques, you know, you can think of portamento of the voice as a kind of uh, lament technique or uh, descending chromatic bass lines as a lament techniques, like all these things that are utilized with musicians that, you know, you can sort of flippantly just not pay attention to. But if you look more closely, they are a lament of a certain style that is in this tradition, um, this ritual tradition, um, anesthetic tradition. So I'm looking back at No Sun and I'm just like, wow, maybe I'm also like an indie professional mourner, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I guess like what you're talking about, like with the idea of, of women who are hired to wail, like in ancient Greece, and then this revival that happens up to the present moment like there is this artifice to this idea that is paralleled by the way contemporary pop divas are viewed as and like you can hear it like even now like people talking about somebody like britney they're like trying to analyze lyrics that happened during the conservatorship but but they're like i don't know like where these lyrics came from like you know like this is where is the expression here and that like but this idea of artifice like goes all the way back basically and the thing that people maybe don't recognize is that you know all songwriting is artifice yeah you know if you write a song you're 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 creating something artificial yeah because it's about uh taking your feelings and a a literal reality and putting them into a uh musical construct so it's always artificial that 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 we just got to like take the authenticity thing and just like burn it you know um 
And so the question is not, is it authentic or is it artificial? I mean, the argument is, is not useful. The question is, um, what is this singer trying to say? You know, and, and how are they saying it? And um, what, how does their communication, um, how does their communication give us a sense of their like selfhood or personhood? You know, um, they're not just merely singing. And the Whitney Houston example is a very like tragic one, but it's a very true one. You know, we think like, oh, these are just like pop songs, just like Bodyguard soundtrack, you know, I Will Always Love You and all that kind of stuff. But now we can't think of that music without thinking about Whitney's personhood, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and it, this is a human who, who sings these songs with, with, real, with a real life and, and real consciousness and a real agency. Um, and I guess that's my purpose is to, is to in, infuse more um, agency, concepts of agency um, and... and into people's perceptions of these divas. And related to this concept of agency is, you know, a tweet that you made where um, you were like, the new Nigel record features Nigel, additional production by oh, Nigel, yeah, 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 yeah. instrumentation by Nigel. Yeah. So, and, you know, I, again, have no, I make no bones about someone just being a singer. And I want that to be totally clear. Like, there is absolute Im incredible skill and thought and composition, quote unquote, that goes into vocalizing. But I do think that being the composer also, for me, um, definitely changes previous perceptions of lament practice in terms of like the the age-old perception um you know in the 1600s there was a composer and there was a singer and the composer was always male um and the aestheticization of the lament the 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 male composed these things and so so you have the ritual lament where men are just singing at funerary rites in ancient greece so when this became a tragic form you know if we're thinking about homer something like that it's like we think about the male author right and then the woman's voice again is just like sound mm. so i would like mm. to just i mean i i, I don't want to say that a woman emitting sound is somehow needs a composer it, it doesn't you know th there's so much agency in that but for my music it's important to recognize that i am the composer and that that means it's or it's very clear that it means then therefore that if I am the composer and I'm lamenting in a very real emotional way, and that's what a song is, then there's two things going on with all songs, <laughs> yeah. which is there's an emotional side that's very real, and there's the calculated uh, portion, the craft, the construction of, of it, and those two things go together, and they, they make it into a, into a sad song, and they can't be separated from each other. Mm. So interesting. Um, I mean, you know, we've been talking about your dissertation, which is fascinating, and your study of lament practice up to within the through the lens of the contemporary pop diva, um, which reflects your academic work. And and I guess I have a, a number of questions related to this, but like <laughs> um, 2018, you have like a, a fairly healthy music career um 
why the choice to uh you know take on academic oh, to go work. to musicology yeah, yeah. um ooh, pragmatic question yeah <laughs> um so i'm a i'm i've always i always wanted to return to academia yeah. um i i really thought i was going to go to graduate school in 2009 and then i ended up touring and it just became a 10-year thing somehow but i was looking into philosophy programs the whole time but it started getting like further and further away from me um, because philosophy programs, you know, you you can't really fall behind. Yeah. You know, you, you have to be fluent in German. You have to have read a lot of different things to even just get your foot in the door. And I was, you know, just getting further from that sort of possibility. Then an uh, old professor of mine uh, told me about this musicology program at UCLA and they're like, he's like, they love performers. Mm. They're so into musicians. Like you can use your music experience. Because the thing I'm talking about right now about No Sun and the insight that as the composer of the work, I can I can sort of understand what sadness, how it's mediated into song because I'm like seeing both sides of the process. You know, I can use that in musicology. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'll just take a meeting with one of these like faculty members and just see what they're like. Maybe it'll be too stuffy for me. I met with this guy, Mitchell Morris, who's a professor there. He's super cool. He writes about Enya and Battlestar Galactica and like 70s like camp and all this kind of stuff. Anyways, he um, he was just we just we didn't stop talking for like an hour about music, you know, and all these different concepts. And I was just like, I think definitely this is a place for me. Mm. And, you know, it's hard sometimes because there are just like wild, like, you know, music theory experts and, you know, virtuosic violinists and people who know so much more than I do. But I think I bring something to, to the table in the program, which is, well, one, my philosophy background, but also just being like, you wouldn't think, but being an indie pop musician, it gives you some insights into just like what happens in music and like just, you know, all the things that go on with performance, with, um, you know, recording with uh, community and creativity and amidst communities and stuff like that, that help to maybe, well, it helps to sort of like dispel uh, any sort of like wide-eyed, mm. glassy-eyed perceptions of famous musicians or famous composers, mm. one. But it also just um, makes my, my investments are just very different than, you know, a classical violinist would be. And I think that that helps. My interest in Rosalia, like, I don't think anybody would have written about her in in my program. And I just felt like this person is doing something that is so um, outside of the norm. But I think that a lot of traditionalists might have been like, oh, that's not real flamenco. We're not writing about that. Mm. You know? Definitely. So that's that's why I, I feel like uh, it's, a, it's the right place for me, at least because even though there's the traditionalist side to musicology, they let you do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and so it's really an exciting place to be. I feel really supported. And it's just like, I don't know, it's nice to have a schedule, go to school, you know, open the books, like be in a seminar room. Like, you know, mu the music biz can feel so like, uh, like uncentered at times. So it it's been really nice. Definitely. I mean, especially in LA where like, you know, people are perma-stoned and flaking <laughs> all the time. Yeah, um, isolated, yeah. Yeah, but, but, you know, this program at UCLA, this musicology program, then led to a professorial post at your alma mater. So, yeah, so fortunate to have 
gotten that position. Uh, I teach songwriting there. Um, I happenstance kind of just fell into the position um, through word of mouth. And that's really cool to teach that class because I think the person who was previously going to teach it was maybe going to take a more traditional approach to teaching it. Uh, and I could see another, I could see a certain person kind of trying to teach it where it's like, okay, guys, this is how you make the perfect pop song. We're going to just spend a semester talking about that and then talking about like, you know, I don't know, Elton John and the Beatles and, you know, all respect to Elton John and the Beatles. But so I take a different sort of approach. I try to think about it more creatively and um, try to think about different styles of songwriting um, that run the gamut and and not just uh, take a really sort of like basic I mean I have to teach them something Matt yeah but like I can't just like teach them Arthur Russell all semester yeah. or something yeah. like that you know it's like okay here's the space lady it's like <laughs> yeah that's not gonna fly maybe in songwriting five sure, I can teach that sure. um, but like I definitely can go more expansive than like the next person would who's like maybe some 60 year old guy who teaches at USC or whatever you know um, and now and so then now I, I uh, teach music business there which is a super fun class I basically just like I mean, I teach them all the nuts and bolts of all the like, you know, litigious stuff, but then uh, have them create music projects and they put on Bandcamp. You know, it's super, super awesome because I'm just like, it's all about vision, yo. There is no secret sauce. You have to have a good idea. Like, and I just just like drill that into them all semester. So that's really fun because I feel like maybe I'm like, making their brains change a little bit mm. about, uh, that it's not just about branding it's like also about like having a, a really good idea musical idea and then uh, I teach music production I teach uh, intro to Ableton Duh. amazing and this is all at Occidental I, I feel like I've seen you play at Occidental it's about like 1.6 miles from the Stone's Throw studio. Yeah, it's like all, it's it's all it's all in the They shop Beverly Hills now to a no college years yeah. there. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah. Like uh, I mean I sh I'm only saying I didn't even know that because during the pandemic I was like walking all around the campus. Oh, all you the were? Time. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's really, it's nice a really beautiful there. campus. Yeah, it's super nice. I feel so lucky. I mean, I'm just like kind of kind of hit the jackpot with that because it's a tiny school. Everyone who works there is awesome. The kids are super cool and they have this state of the art like production studio now. And uh, I feel like I'm in Star Trek at like the teacher's desk and it's just like all my lectures being projected everywhere. I mean, it's pretty, and I love teaching Ableton. That's yeah. this that is actually my favorite class because it's intro. So I get to be like, you don't have to be an engineer. Yeah. You can just be creative <laughs> with production, you know? And uh, that's been really inspiring because kids from all walks of life, I can sort of like get them into producing. So a lot of, you know, female students have come back to me and just been like, you helped me so much. Or just other, you know, students from marginalized backgrounds who like didn't grow up with technology and it doesn't come naturally to them. Um, and I feel like that's been really, really rewarding to see the kids like respond to that who maybe would have been afraid if a professor came at it from a super super technical angle um and by technical i just mean like not fun yeah yeah you know totally i mean okay so you're teaching undergrads grad students both undergrads, yeah. uh, undergrads and um i mean they're very lucky to have you as a professor oh, yeah but like um do they know who you are so 
sort of like they kind of like it will like become known like they'll follow me on Instagram yeah. and then they'll like send me a demo or yeah. whatever you know like it'll it'll progress over time and um, and you know I, I teach songwriting to high school students over the summer it's like a it's like a, a boot camp basically and I stay in touch with those kids and like they email me their songs and stuff like that and you know being a mus- an indie musician for so long and just really being obsessed with yourself and your career and just it's it's very myopic and more than even studying musicology which has been like so rewarding i mean you can see i can't stop talking about these dissertation issues but um has been teaching i mean just like he- seeing kids see- like they're so inspiring they're they have such cool ideas and they're so ready to like learn and just like they're just doing it for the love of it and like to be able to help them in any way or like just give them a boost or like give them a technique that they can use I mean that has been like insanely rewarding and it also helped me with um my record in the sense that like these kids are into some weird shit they're into yeah. some weird music and like the music they make is bizarre and they just have they have way more like they're not thinking traditionally about music you can really do out stuff and they'll be like oh cool mm. um and that like I, I kept that with me a lot about just like how do, i don't like don't get old with it yeah you know <laughs> like yeah like remember that you know young people are thinking about music in more and more experimental and interesting ways, you know? And yeah, you genuinely believe that you feel like this next generation is going to make some of the craziest music ever. I mean, I feel like I've heard some of the craziest music ever. (laughs) It's going to be different though. I mean, you know, like it's going to be different. I will I will mourn the album format if it actually dies. I will just I it will be a full-on tragedy. I'm not saying that the individual music that they make won't be interesting um and that they won't make some of the coolest craziest music, but I just hope that it stays within the album format that that it it still manages to be be these coherent statements of like multiple songs together and it just doesn't become singles everywhere because yeah. as cool as a single can be um, there's nothing like a wild album. Like I was just listening to all these Autechre records because I was doing um, like this dummy magazine 10 best. Yeah. So I was like D- 10 best Autechre songs, which is just what I like, you know, yeah. my favorite Autechre songs. And I'm just like, these MFers, like yeah. what the hell is going on <laughs> over there? You know what I mean? Like just, they will just, just twist something in the craziest way. Um, they'll start out with some like housey R&B chords and you'll be like, oh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for what's gonna come next. And then you are like not ready for the drum pattern that's about to kick in, you know? And, but alone, one song alone, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the same weight as them releasing these as records, as coherent statements and having such a crazy body of work. So I just like hope that continues with whatever out music is being made is mm. that, you know, the, the, the ooves like of, of work continues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've spoken a lot about like the liberatory aspects of space and <laughs> the lament and pop music and, uh, you know, teaching production to, um, 
people who might not have had access to technology in high school, which is something that you relate to. Yeah. Um, and I guess like my question is like, you, you were like, yeah, like thinking about your career every day and like waking up and like talking to your manager, et cetera, <laughs> like, and, and like being like, what are we doing? It's like, I don't know. What are we doing? Like, and, th- <laughs> and then like it with you, like having this like other profession is that like the ultimate liberatory act to some extent? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think no son would have sounded like this if I wasn't in a different profession. Yeah. Um, it gave me, I mean, you know, financially, it gave me the security to not have to think about, oh, is the algorithm going to respond to this? <laughs> like, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, sure, like, it'd be nice if, if the algorithm bumps one of the songs up, but there's no way to predict that. I mean, you know, like one of my songs from Real High got on some like feel good dinner music playlist completely unbeknownst to me thank you like world i don't know and it's like do i want to be on that playlist no and uh, okay it's sidebar but anyways like you know i feel like financially i had the just space and sort of security to do anything i wanted with this record you know uh i didn't have to have anxieties about filling in the silences uh, about having to you know do I have to rethink the chorus? Do I have to? Do I have to? You know, add some more like sub bass into this? Or do I have to? You know, inject some 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 eight oh eights? You know, it's like it's just I didn't even have to worry about it at all. Um, and yeah, that was extremely freeing. You're right. Well, you know, the record is obviously a product of that sort of freedom. It's a beautiful record. Uh, the record is called No Sun. It is out on August twenty seventh which may or may not have passed by the time that you were hearing this, but um, uh, Night Jewel, Ramona Gonzalez, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Thanks for all the awesome questions. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Um, listen to the record. Um, and it's not at, that sad, by the way. It's, it, that's exactly... It's, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's like, you know, there's there's some lament-like themes, but ultimately, I, I think it's a pretty... I think it's not too... I think this is a nice record to listen to, don't you? If you heard it at, like, Gelson's or something, <laughs> you wouldn't immediately clock it as no, sad. No, yeah. no. I like the Gelson's rap. Yeah, which is, yeah. like, you know, what's been going Gelson's on with... gang. <laughs> which is what's been going on with pop music all these years, you know. Exactly. That's, that's the point to remember. Thanks so much, Ramona. Thanks, Matt. Bye. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Night Jewel and Matt McDermott. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with the phenomenal house music producer and pop writer, Ashiba. That is available on all platforms now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then... Take care.